0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blink Podcast. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm very excited to talk with you. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Yeah, thank you, Robbie. My name is Jim Gokunar, and I'm 77 years old. And in the early 70s, 1970 to 19, uh, the first month in uh, 72, I was involved in conversations with Secret Service agent in charge of the Seattle District, Elmer Moore, his assistant, Carl Hardy, and my landlord, who was an ex-FBI agent by the name of Carver Gaten. Uh, These conversations were, I would say, conversations they they definitely weren't uh question answer type of things until uh in nineteen seventy one may seventh the seventh day in may uh I was talking with Elmer Moore, and it was a question answer type of thing uh with Carver Gayton it was more of him just simply talking about his experiences and working with James P. Hostie of the FBI who was in Dallas at the time of the uh, assassination of President Kennedy.
2: Now, this all started
1: in February of 1970. At that particular time, I was in a Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Washington, and one of the requirements for completing that program was to teach at least one or two classes in one of Seattle's public high schools. And one of the things that uh, I did when I first got there in 69 was that I signed up to be teaching ceramics at Garfield High School, South Central part of Seattle. And the art department chairman at that time, in February of 1970, he put up a thing that the the, the teachers and the students put together a large art show in May of 1970. And so what my class and I did was try to figure out what the theme of the material that we were going to submit. And I showed slides of the Minoan and ancient Greek ceramics and noted that on these pieces of art, they depicted their respective mythology and their history and whimsical themes. And I said, let's take a current event in the last 20 years or so, and try to depict it on what you had your choice, a thrown pottery or, you know, ceramic sculpture. And everybody agreed that that would be a cool thing to do. So what I did is, uh, what was I gonna contribute? And I thought, well, I better go to my favorite place, which was a used bookstore on uh, University Way and Brooklyn Avenue in uh, Seattle near the university. I always browse through there for images and ideas. And I came across a book called Four Days. It was uh, a uh, United Press International uh, a cooperative thing with different newspapers, and what struck my eye it was, uh, you know, the UPS and under it, Milwaukee Sentinel. So that was my hometown. So I thought, hey, I just paged through it, and one of the things that uh, I noticed was on page eighteen of that uh, book was Mary Mormon's famous photograph of the instant the JFK is getting shot and I noticed that there was some sort of image on the fence and I thought well maybe I can get a clear resolution of that because what I was going to do is I was going to make a photo silk screen of it and apply under colored underglazes to produce an image so I said, who's helped me? I don't know how to get a hold of a better better resolution of that. And uh, I called the local FBI agent, at uh, local FBI station in Seattle on the 23rd of February of 1970. Very polite agent talked with me and he says, I don't think we can help you, but I know who would. And I said, oh, who's that? And he said, well, I'll hold on the line. I'm going to connect you directly to secret agent Elmer Moore. And I waited and all of a sudden, it was, this is Elmer Moore. How can I help you? So I told him that what I was looking for. And one of the things that he said that stood out right away is, well, I personally handle that photograph and you're out of luck, Jim. There's no way of getting a good resolution on it because there's no negative, it was a Polaroid. And then he just jumped into this thing about, why are you a critic? Why are you, have you ever read the full 26 volumes of the Warren Report? And I said, no, I said I hadn't. And he says, well, you're probably uh, an apostle of, mark lane and i says i know who he is but i've never read any of his material and i'm not really a critic all i want is a better resolution of that photograph and he said well i can't help you on that uh i gave the and this is really funny he says i gave it to to the uh national photo interpretation center in bethesda maryland and then when I got it back, I gave it to the FBI. So it was kind of weird. At any rate, the the conversation continued. He said, "You know, the experience of being involved as a lead investigator for the Secret Service made me a student of American political assassinations."
2: And he said, "You know that." Uh, Right
1: from when Andrew Jackson, the attempt on him by Richard, uh, I believe his name was
2: Richard Lawrence, to the, you know, all
1: the way up through this century. They're all crazy one month that were completely and totally insane or had strange grievances. And I said, well, when in high school, in my history class, I made uh, part of my project for getting through the junior year was to study the Civil War. And I chose to
0: look up John Wilkes Booth. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And
1: and I said, you know, this guy had about 11 or 12 accomplices. (laughs) And he says, yes, but he was so central to the plot. You can say that he was a lone assassin. And I said, that's not right. (laughs) Uh, He went back and forth from Montreal with lots and lots of money, and he definitely was uh, at least an informant for the Confederate Secret Service. And then I went on to say that when I was looking up Lincoln's assassination, I came across A very interesting event that happened in March of 1864. At that time, somebody gave the authorization for a cavalry raid on Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. And one of the wings of this cavalry raid was led by a man by the name of Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren Dahlgren and his men were unfortunately uh, intercepted by the Confederate Home Guard, and he was killed and his papers were taken and in those papers, there was a uh, handwritten notes to liberate a prisoner of war camp, arm them, sack Richmond and capture uh, Jefferson Davis and his cabinet or kill him. And it was. Situation was taken in and uh, Richmond newspapers splattered it all over and got into it, they. Jefferson Davis actually um, addressed his cabinet about it. And there was a man by the name of Jonah Benjamin who had held Secretary of State and other things in the the cabinet of uh, Jefferson Davis. And right away, there was an idea of revenge. I surmised that they gave the assignment to Booth, how to pull off either capturing or killing. Lincoln in retaliation. At that point, uh, Elmer Moore said, hey, can you spell Volkren's name? And so he got involved. He started talking about uh, uh, President Garfield and he felt there was something fishy about that, but didn't get into it. And then we talked about uh, the guy that uh, shot and killed McKinley and the attempted assassination in Milwaukee, by the way, of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And so this went on for a while. And then he said, you know, I said, what, what did you actually uh, do as lead investigator? And he said, well, I with uh, Inspector Tom Kelly, who ran the show and the agent in charge uh, down there, Sorrels, and I would meet in, in the late afternoon or into the evening, and we would make assignments for the various agents that came in. This was all done until President Johnson uh, required that the FBI take over
2: the investigation. And then he said that.
1: I know you're a student at U of Washington. I'll tell you what, I'll be your professor, and I'll give you an assignment for getting me three good questions about the interview uh, I was involved in with uh, Chief Justice Warren Ford and uh, the Chief Counsel Rankin in uh, June of uh, 64. And read it. And give me three good questions and call me back in about a month or so and maybe we can get together for a lunch and discuss all this stuff
0: you opened them up
1: well what happened is is that um i did call him about a month later in between that time uh i first i sort of dismissed it i was too busy uh, but the thing that I did is that I went over to the U of Washington's library, which had the 26 volumes. And I started reading that. And it was very interesting. There was a segment in there where Rankin said, well, Mr. They're talking to Jack Ruby and they say, Mr. Ruby, we have information that you had met in the Carousel Club with J.D. Tibbet. And a man by the name of Bernard Wiseman and an oil man. And what struck me is that Ruby's reply was, Who was the oil man? And I thought, Well, wait a minute. I think that Rankin should follow up on this, but he didn't. He just went on to another question. And I, I, that was one of the questions. The other question was that Ruby was very interested in having either truth serum or. A polygraph test to. Make sure that he was telling the truth. And Moore told me that he was a registered polygraph examiner in Cal in the state of California. And, uh, he. Ruby says, well. Elmer, is this. You know, should I, is it, you think it's a good idea? And Moore said, no. <laughs> So that was the other question. Why did you say no? And then I was going to go to the very obvious thing. Why don't they then take me to. Uh, Washington, because uh, it's unsafe for me here to talk and. Uh, I called him, I called Moore. and this was. I talked with him in February 23rd, I think it was a, probably about uh, the mid April. And. I said, I'm following up. I wanna ask you to talk about three interesting questions about that interview. And he all, he just started, well, we couldn't take him to Washington. There was no protocols for that. And we would have to spend a lot of time getting the security together. And then he said, Jim, I got to go, click. (laughs) I didn't get in the questions that I wanted to. Uh, about the end of April, I called him and he said, why don't we get together for a lunch at this Oriental Cafe about six blocks from uh, the federal building where he was. So I went there, uh, it was a one o'clock meeting set up. I was there for about an hour, he didn't show up. Of course, there was no cell phones then, so I couldn't you know, run into him. The thing is, is that that night, he called me and apologized and said, "But well, let's next month let's try it again." That happened. That happened. And then I was getting a little bit irritated with it. Uh in the interim I'd been talking with Harold Weisberg, uh the critic who wrote whitewash series of books. And we talked extensively about uh you know, more. He considered more to be a total villain, and he didn't know how to, he didn't, Harold said he couldn't understand how the guy could sleep at night for, and this is when I first found out about it. Harold said he really threatened Dr. Perry, Malcolm Perry, who worked on the president trying to save his life, and the question all revolved around, you know, the, the neck wound, whether it was an entry or exit wound. And he expressed surprise that I've been able to establish rapport with more. Uh, we had a number of uh, questions back and forth on a telephone with uh, Harold, and I sort of got a very detailed picture of what he knew about him. So I had an idea of questions I would ask him in the future if I can get a hold of him. In the interim, in March of 1971, uh, I asked Harold, what if I acted as a broker and, you know, ask more if he would speak with you? And he said, oh, go no, I I won't speak with him. There's two reasons. I don't, he, He'll give me the wrong answers. I don't know. And I can't afford to get out there. I'd rather do it face to face, but I, I don't have the money to do so. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I know that another critic is going to give a presentation soon in Victoria. British Columbia. His name is Richard E. Sprague and I said okay and he gave me a phone number. The phone number was for a uh, business in Massachusetts and then they gave me a number. I could go to get uh, Richard's uh, number. I talked with him and he said let's talk at the airport uh, and SeaTac Airport in between the flights between for he was coming from New York City to straight to Seattle and then Seattle to Victoria and I said great and so on March 29 1971 I uh, met Richard E. Sprague in the airport at Seattle and we went from concourse to concourse he was so paranoid um, we've got to look for uh, a deserted concourse to talk. Okay. And then we went to one and some people came to sit down and then he said, we got to go to another one. This was really chewing up the time. But, uh, I talked about more with him. And I talked about the fact that I, my landlord, uh, gave me some information about, uh, Hostie and he took notes. And he said, You know, Jim, uh, what's in the satchel that you're carrying? I said, Oh, that's some photographs that I have. I'm just starting to get interested in photography. He says, Oh, I'm very interested in it. Uh, in fact, I've got some 400 photographs from Daily Plaza. And I said, Oh, wow, I'd like to see some of them. And he said, Well, I, I, I've got it in a presentation slides right now. It'd be hard to, you know, project them here. And he said that uh, he had a photograph of the Noel, grassy knoll fence line that would shock everybody. And I said, I really want to see that. And he said, well, I don't have it with me to tell you the truth. And he says, well, let me see some of your photographs. I had taken some photographs. There was a massive bombing on campus uh in
0: the early part of uh march of that year at the naval rotc center oh is that the kent the kent bombing at the university
1: yes yeah. yes and i i went there with my camera i was carried my camera around and i took some pictures of some guys that looked pretty much like federal agents whether they were oni or whatever roaming about. So I took a picture of them. They had
2: earphones and trench
1: coats. They just looked the part. And I showed one of those two spray, and he nearly jumped up. He says, I've seen this guy before. Can I have this one? Uh, yeah, I said, yeah, I, I got the negative. You can have it. And as we were going
2: out, He said, well, I'll be in contact with you. Sprague wrote a
1: long letter about our meeting uh, to Bernard Festerwald, who was in the organization that Richard E. was. Uh, That led up to no real response from Harold Weisberg. Other than about a month later, he got very angry with me that I even talked with Sprague, and I said, "Well, you, you told me that he was a contact," and he trailed off. Um, this was going on back and forth. I'd call more, and he said, "Well, I'm real busy. I'll call you." And then, in May of 1971, I said, "I've had enough. I'm going to." violate his rules and I'm going to walk up to the secret service office and I'm going to ask to talk with him and I said wow you know I talked to my uncle who was a lieutenant of detectives for Walworth County in Wisconsin I sort of kept them up to date on things I was doing and he thought at first it was interesting but he said ah At this point, he's not going to talk to you anyway. You might as well just quit. So I said, I'll give it one last roll of the dice. And on Friday, May 7th, 1971, I got on the bus about one o'clock in the afternoon, and I decided I'm just going to go down to the downtown area where the federal building was and see if I could get and to talk with him, Elmer Moore. Little did I, I I completely forgot there was an anti-war Kent State Memorial uh, protest downtown Seattle. And I was coming down the hills. It's very hilly in Seattle. Uh, And I noticed there were many buses loaded with riot police. March, the bus driver said we can't go any further, I'll give everybody transfers. I decided to jump out of the bus and took the transfer and I was walking down into, you you had to go between, you had to go down the route that the protesters were using uh, to get to the federal building. So I'm walking down there, I had my briefcase and My backpack and my
0: cameras and I was walking down the street and man, it was a mess. Agent Provocateurs involved in that one. I believe that they were peaceful protesting. Oh, my God, it wasn't peaceful at all. But I was
1: taking pictures and some, I think it was a girl's yelling out, he's a pig, he's a pig, he's, he's a photographer for the cops. And all of a sudden I'm being chased. And I get down another block, and I'm photographing this guy getting arrested by this police. And a cop took a swing at me with his baton. He says, give me that camera. And I said, no. And I'm running off. I'm going down alleys. Uh, the thing is, I'm getting pretty sweaty, <laughs> kind of ugly looking. And I finally made it to the about, I would say, about 10 after 4. I arrived at the federal building, which is got on a steep hill. And so that really wore me out. And I thought, well, I'm going to be, since I've got all this equipment on me, I'm going to be frisked at the door. And there's nobody there. I walked into the thing. The place was deserted. Here's a riot two blocks away. You'd think there'd be some security. There wasn't. And so I went to their ornate elevators and went to the fifth floor to talk with more. And as I was going down the the rooms of the uh, fifth floor, so on one end of it from the elevators, uh, my shoes, my tennis shoes, were squeaking. It was just annoying the heck out of me. Got to a presentation box about events coming up, and it, you know, I, I was looking at myself in the mirror. Here I'm got hair down to my shoulders little beard disheveled completely and I said oh god they think I'm from the weather underground and kick me out so I got to the door and it was completely silent in the uh hallway but once I got inside the secret service office I noticed to my left there were two fairly large teletype machines just chattering it was like machine gun fire and I I got to the front desk, and there was a lady with, she was tapping up probably reports and stuff, and she didn't really pay attention to me. And I leaned over, and I said, excuse me, ma'am. And she jumped up, and she probably looked at me and said, oh, she's one of the hippie rioters, you know. And she
2: said, well, Elmer uh, probably went home. And I said, oh, no, I went through all this.
1: And an agent, a young guy, said, what do you want to talk to Elmer Moore about? And I said, well, I've been talking to him uh, about, uh, you know, things political for the last almost year. And he says, well, let me see if he's in uh, the other side of the office. And so he came back and he's with this guy who's about six foot tall. He's got light brown hair probably about, oh, about 180, 190 pounds, wearing the most god-awful tie you've ever seen. The He says, you must be Jim, the guy I've been talking to on the phone. And I says, yeah. And he says, well, you having fun rioting? And I said, no, not at all. I've been chased by everybody, the cops, the protesters, and everybody started laughing in the room. And, uh, you know, it was was interesting, to say the least. And he shook hands with me and he says, I've had enough. Let's go and talk. Let's go into my office. And as the way in, there was this guy that sort of looked like Mr. Burns on uh, The Simpsons standing there. And this is my assistant agent in charge, Carl Hardy. And I hand took out my hand, he just stood there. He just staring at me. And as we were going into the office, which I think was a conference room as well, because it had a large oak table with a glass pane across it. And <laughs> there was this, somebody called out to Elmer Moore, said, there's a call for you, Mr. Moore. He said, wait a minute, and Hardy escorted me in. I sat down on one end of the table and put my camera up there and my satchel on the thing, and Hardy came right up to me, right in my my face, very rudely, said, I don't know what you people want. Elmer Moore was the lead investigator for this investigation that was the best in our history. And I said, well, I just want to hear more of the story. And I spelled out more rather than just say more. I said, M-O-O-R-E. And he says, don't be a wise ass. And he jumped around the table. And he, on his way out, Moore was coming in. And he says, "You don't talk, don't talk to this kid. Don't talk to this kid. And they both went into the reception area and he closed the door and there was some shouting going on. And I said, oh, my God, this is really, I, this is really a labyrinth to try to talk to this guy. And he came back in the room and I said, listen, if I'm a nuisance, I can go. He says, oh, no, no, no. It's It's... Really bad budget thing. Well, I need at least four more agents. We can't cover our caseload. I said, Oh, well, I think that, you know, Carl should uh, consider changing his uh, coffee, you know, intake. You know, and he laughed and we were talking there and he said, How would you use anything I tell you? And I said, Well, How about if I be your biographer? Uh, I did an interview of a a professor when I was going to University of Wisconsin-Whitewater by the name of Dr. Palinay, who was in the Hungarian Revolution, and they captured him, and I was in a, I had to take a English class to go through the uh, program I was in there, and all I got was, the only one I was available at the time, was a beginning journalism class taught by a man who apparently was a a journalist for some time before he went and uh, got his professorship. And I said, I uh, they took that report, my interview of it, and printed it, and it was very. Uh, I think we can, you know, do something with this. And he says, Oh God, no. He says, I took an oath on this case and I'm near retirement and I don't wanna spend it in jail. I said, oh, here we go. Blockade after blockade after blockade to get to this guy. And he says, listen, I'll tell you what, these are the conditions that I will talk with you. One, you can't take any notes. Two, no recording, me or you. Three, if you make public anything I tell you, I will deny it. And for God's sakes, he says, if I find out that you talked with Carl Hardy in anything, I'll make your life miserable. I said, okay.
2: So. Did you feel
1: comfortable so, yet? Pardon me? Did you feel comfortable yet? <laughs> Uh, it was it was strange. The thing is that he says, "Let's introduce ourselves to each other." I'll start, and then he gave me his background that he he, he was from the Bay Area in uh, San Francisco, Oakland area. He went to a college uh, and graduated in '32. Uh, he liked sports. He was with the uh, Alameda County. Sheriff's Department in the late 30s. And then when the war broke out, he joined the Coast Guard Intelligence Unit in the Bay Area. And then in in 44, the end of 44, he came to uh, become a uh, Secret Service agent. And then I gave him my background. I was from Richland Center, Wisconsin, originally, and then settled in Milwaukee, went to uh, uh, UW-Whitewater, and then uh, I entered the uh, fine arts program in the University of Washington in Seattle, and I arrived there in 1969.
2: And he said, great. He leaned back in his chair. And he was tapping on the table with a pencil. <laughs> Excuse me. And he says, well, Jim, who killed Jack Kennedy?
1: And he says, I'll tell you who it wasn't with 100% certainty. And I said, whoa. And he says,
2: it wasn't the Russians. And I'll tell you why you Jack Kennedy. the Russians, boy, it, I will say it. He was a traitor. I didn't expect that.
1: He went into about a 20 minute spiel about how bad Kennedy made decisions. He said that. Uh, He and his brother, Robert, used a cutout that was a KGB agent by the name of Arashtakov,
2: and that they didn't, he didn't think it was a good policy to
1: have a test ban treaty, uh, the wheat deal. And that he had introduced uh, an idea to the to Khrushchev, the premier of Russia uh, a joint space program situation, and that he was very upset with the idea that they didn't follow through with u n inspections in Cuba. He says maybe the rockets are still there, maybe the warheads are still there and uh, I said something to the effect, well, we know that Harding had a lot of girlfriends that kept them in the closets. And he says, yeah, Jim, but at that time they didn't have any many phones. And what Moore meant by many phones was bugging devices. And I said, are you insinuating that uh, the president was being surveilled? And he said, he nodded like that. He didn't say yes or no. So I took it that he meant that. So the next sec, he says, well, here we've been blathering on. You came here to ask me some questions. Fire away. So I said, well, let's talk about Oswald. Yeah, she said, OK. I, I said to him, uh, did you interview Oswald? He said, oh, no, I came the next Friday is when I arrived in Dallas. He explained that uh, after Ruby shot, Oswald on uh, that Sunday prior, he got a call from his secret agent in charge in San Francisco and said that Chief Rowley of the Secret Service demands that you get to Washington immediately. Any flight that you can get right away, get it indirectly. And he said that uh, there, the week there, and this I think is very important, he was Moore was uh, debriefed on what was already known and other things and how they expected him to deal with photography and uh, organize, you know, the, the investigation from Dallas with the assistant of uh, Inspector Thomas Kelly and Forrest Sorrells, of course, who is a secret agent in charge in Dallas, Fort Worth. And he said, I didn't have a chance to talk to Oswald, but he said that Kelly, the inspector, said he was very impressed with how Oswald handled himself. Uh, He said that he was very surprised, Kelly was very surprised that Oswald was interrogated in a very small room with a lot of people in it, something that they wouldn't do, uh, and that to move him from room to room to room was a very bad idea. But they couldn't really complain because they were guests, and there was no federal statute at that time covering uh, the president. They couldn't directly take over, of course, the interrogation. And I said, oh, okay. And then I said, well, was the Oswald that came out of the Soviet Union the same Oswald that went in? And he said, uh, what do you mean by that, a different person? And I said, well, not necessarily that, but somebody that uh, has been changed, you know, I mean, turned to to the to the Soviet side. And he said, Well, there's a possibility on that. The CIA wasn't very helpful about what was going on in uh, uh, Russia that they knew about. They didn't share much with us. Thought that was interesting. And then he said that uh, Oswald and Marina Oswald could have been a part of a husband wife team that the the like he put it the reds like to use and i said oh so we're going on about you know uh what he thought about uh ruby getting and shooting oswald you know when there's so many officers in a basement there and he says well a lot of officers knew ruby
0: so they wouldn't be surprised that he was around So he was aware of Dallas police and Jack Ruby connections? Yes. Okay. Because the Warren Commission stated that Jack Ruby had no police ties.
2: Well, he had Ruby.
1: I asked him at one near where where we're breaking off. Did he know J.D. Tibbetts? And he said, probably. He says it was another Tibbetts on the force. But a lot of, uh, he would entertain that carousel club. He, they they could come in free. Uh, there was uh, gifts. I found out later uh, that uh, he co-signed loans for certain cops. Uh, he definitely had
2: ties to officers. They knew him. Well, how could he get in the basement if he didn't? Well, I do believe that, as a sidebar here, uh, I talked in 2008 with uh,
1: Lieutenant Jack Reville of the uh, Dallas uh, Intelligence Unit in the uh, thing, and I said, he, he said, Oh, the only thing I can say is, is that Blackie Harrison, who was a detective in a juvenile division, completely failed his polygraph test about contact
2: with Ruby. Uh, he said that there was another sergeant
1: that knew him well. And he said he failed the questions that he answered. He was of the opinion that Ruby had inside information that day on movements. Uh, We went on after that. uh, I asked him, well, what do you think the motive of uh, Ruby was to shoot Oswald? And he says, well, to be honest with you, I think he thought that he should do it because the cops didn't do it and that his friends in the police force would, uh, you know, uh, help him. He went on to say that there were certain laws in Texas at the time that uh, if you did something out of malice, there was no chance that they they could get life, but you could get ten. And Ruby, he thinks Ruby. Thought of himself that he could really make a name for himself by doing you know that deed um, We went on from
2: Oswald to
1: photography. That's the main thing I was interested in because there was this life magazine cover uh, I believe it was. Uh, sometime in the spring of uh, 64, and it showed uh, the limo going down towards the grassy knoll and an outcat out thing uh, with a, a black figure there that people called the Black Dog Man. And I showed it to him. He looked at it and he says, Oh, that's just shadows. Uh, from the leaves on the trees. He was very, very hesitant, which lead me to believe that uh, they knew there was something activity
2: there. Uh, I showed him the Hughes
1: uh, photograph of the sixth floor window, which looked vacated as the limo was going down Houston Street, and uh, it was in a book called Six Seconds in Dallas by Josiah Thompson. I showed him the picture and he says, yeah, I was concerned about that. It does seem like there's a fuzzy image of somebody in the window next to the open window on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Um, interestingly enough, uh, there, there was testimony from people st- standing on the Rollins' uh, husband and wife on Houston Street, and they said they saw a man with a rifle and another man in a suit on the west end of the windows of the Texas School Book Depository. So I said, you know, that there were numerous witnesses. Did you talk to them? He said no. And he said that he watched the Zebruder film many times. And he said, I said, I I looked at that thing too many times, I started to get nightmares about it.
2: But it's inconclusive, he said. Uh, At that point, I said, Well, I understand that you
1: were kind of rough on Dr. Perry when you interviewed him, and then he gave me a kind of a nasty stare and he says, Where did you get that from? Mark Lane? He had this thing about Mark Lane. And I said, No, I, I, I just read about it in other books. And he says, Well. He said, I was ordered to do
2: that. You're going to knock me over with a feather. And I said, well, who ordered you to do it? He said, well, Kelly in Washington. And then
1: I said, how did this all come about? And he said, well, I went up there with agent agent, uh, another agent. And we both had copies of the autopsy report. This was uh, right around the first week of December of 63. And I pulled Perry aside, wanted to talk to him about, an, he started out with an anatomical term that he didn't understand. And then he said, well, it's possible it could be either an entry or an exit wound. Isn't that right? You know, and he kept that type of pressure on is what he said. Others have said that he was pretty brutal about it, said that if he continued to talk about a frontal shot, you know, he'll lose his license. And I think I think that's the truth. Uh, He didn't say it that way, but he did talk about it and then he he breaks in on the conversation. He says, well, Jim, what is your theory on Oswald? And i am taken back a little bit. He's pushing me off the subject at hand. But I said, well, I think he was involved, but I don't think he was shooting. And I think he had plenty of help. Then Elmer Moore, looking me straight in the face, says, you know, Jim, you'd be surprised to know I agree with you. And I nearly passed out. I mean, I really,
2: you know, and then he says, well.
1: I. Made a report on December 11th, 63, that said. That it's impossible. To track the true trajectories from the film and from the president's wounds. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. You know, angles are all wrong, but he didn't, he didn't specify what he meant by that. It says your internet connection is unstable.
0: You're all right. I, I, can still get, I can hear you. Okay.
1: Anyway, I asked him if I could have a copy of that report. And he says, oh, it's in the public domain. You can get it anywhere. Go to the archives. And he was right. It's, it's available, but not a peep about it in the Warren Commission. At any rate, we went on to talk about Jack Ruby. I asked a series of questions. My first one was, Was Ruby an associate of the syndicate? And he paused. He said, "Well, that's kind of an interesting question." He says, "But I don't think he was an associate. I think he was a gopher. He was a consummate hustler that was always available." And I next I asked. I said, "Well, was he a pimp?" And he said, "Oh yeah. He had a separate crew of girls that." Uh, he used and he had an uh, arrangements at the Adolphus Hotel. That was, uh, I guess, right across the street from the carousel. And I said, well, was he a gun runner? He says, oh, yes. He he was very scared that they'd known that uh, he was providing material or trying to get to the point where he would provide material for Castro at one point. Uh,
2: I asked uh, about the
1: situation with uh, the dancers and he said he used them to his advantage is the way he put it. Uh, he said he tried out his girls. And so I don't think he was a homosexual. And I said that. uh, Larry Crawford said he was and he worked for him. He says, Well, I don't think so. He says, I think that uh, when I talked with Ruby, then he got into a thing of how many times that he went and talked with Ruby, which is the number of times he went with uh, a couple of agents two times. And uh, he went to uh, Eva Grant's home or apartment, I should say, um, to talk with Ruby's sister. And he went on with, uh, you know, he thought she was just an insane dingbat. Uh, But he realized that every time he asked questions, she would deflect it by bringing up other things in that he noticed on a shelf, apparently, a picture of Ruby and some other people. And he asked if he could borrow it, he would get it back to her, make a copy of it. She said, keep it. He said that he went back to the office, showed it to Kelly and Kelly grabbed it and uh, said, forget it. It's not anything that I can use Give it back to her or I'll keep it. And I asked Elmer, oh, what do you remember? It was in the image that it was. And he said, well, it was Ruby and a woman and another guy and a woman at a table at a club or something. I said, oh, okay. Then we went on to talk about Ruby's legal representation, and he said he was just surprised as heck that when he was talking with Earl Ruby, which is interesting because he kept on talking with the Ruby family, didn't want to have this man, Howard, a local guy, handle Ruby. Well, they ended up with this guy, Belli, from San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, Moore said to me, I I sort of knew a lot about him, but he wasn't a very good, he very rarely handled uh, criminal defense. He was torts. He was, uh, you know, real estate problems, uh, divorces, things that had to do with more civil things than criminal. And he was a showboat and he was At his best to insult everybody in Dallas, you know, they were Hicks and all that and had a weird defense. He thinks that if Howard continued to be
2: Ruby's uh, lawyer,
1: that he would have gotten something like uh, second degree murder or manslaughter, something like a very reduced
2: situation. And then I started asking him about the Chicago plot.
1: I said, uh, "Did you know about or understand the man by name of Thomas the Valley?" And he says, "Who?" And I said, uh, "The Chicago is incident uh, in the first part of November." He says, "Oh, they wouldn't let me look at those reports." I said, "Hmm." He's running an investigation, and they won't let him read those reports. And I said, what about Abraham Bolden?
2: At that point, Elmer stood up, and he said, that line, we took care of him. And I said, what,
1: you did? He says, no, Kelly and the chief, Uh, a sidebar. Phil Singer and I went to talk with uh, Abraham Bolden in 19, 2019. And I asked him about that uh, deal uh,
2: with how he had tried to warn the higher ups in
1: the Secret Service about a meeting that about five o'clock in the afternoon in 61, and he thinks it was in June. Johnson came storming through the White House and met with President Kennedy and his brother, uh, Bobby, the attorney general, and the door closed and they were shouting and yelling and exp- explosives. And as Johnson was leaving, he says, Don't fuck with me, you assholes. And I was thinking, wow, that's pretty rough. And he, and this is this is why it's important to get all the documents. Apparently, Abraham Bolden made a report on it that uh President Johnson threatened President Kennedy. And it's, it's nowhere to be found, of course. But as I got to that point, you know, uh, Moore stood up. He's snapping at me. He says, are you recording me? And I said, no. He slaps down his pistol on the table. And he says, tell me who you're working for right now. And I said, I'm an independent researcher. Sometimes I talk with Harold Weisberg. And he grabs my camera and takes it apart. He's looking through my you know, satchel, briefcase, that type of thing, and seeing the the, the Johnson book, <clears throat> I mean, the Thompson book, he puts it up on the table. He says, well, I'll pay for any of the film that you, I ruined. And I said, it's already wrapped. You're okay. And I said, do you want to, you know, pat me down?
2: And he said, no, no. He says, oh,
1: he says, I'll tell you, um, I got to show you something. So he goes to his right, to a closet that has louvers on it, it's white. He opens it up, he gets on his knees, and I think he was working a safe combo. And he pulls out this big black satchel. And it it looked like he was struggling to get it to the table. And I said, can I help you? No, no, no. I want to show you something. I said, okay, okay. He lifts it up on the table. He opens this big satchel, leather satchel, black leather satchel. He says, oh, damn it. It's on the bottom. So he starts out and he takes out document holders and files and a a big sheath in a big uh, folio of photographs. And as well, he's digging things out, I'm looking through the photographs, and there's a, there's a transparency, black and white, of the backyard photograph of Oswald holding a gun, you know. And right across the chin line, you can see there's a different dot pattern, you know, and there's speckles all over the place. And I looked a little bit further, and it looks like there's pictures of people in the crowd. And then, boom, he's seeing that I'm looking through it, and he slaps his hand down on it. And I said, hey, can I copy? And he says, no. And he gets down to a math book, elementary school math book, and he opens it up. And he has Roy Truly Signature. So when he was up on the sixth floor, he picked out a couple of the books. Apparently he got three of them. He gave one to the chief, Chief Jim Raleigh of the Secret Service, one to himself, and one to uh, Douglas Dillon, the Secretary of the Treasury. And then he pulls out a very nice leather presentation folio. And he opens it up and he shows me that he had received a handwritten note by Lyndon Johnson. And it starts out, that's about as far as I could get before he closed it off, was that uh, to our best investigator, your service to me and the country is blah. And then, you know, he, he closes and he opens up another one with pictures of Lyndon Johnson's signature to him. Then there was a picture of a group of men, and I could recognize uh, Elmer Moore in it, but I didn't know who the others are. And he says, well, oh, wait a minute, we got to close this down now. Uh, We got to be out of here. He looks over to me as he's, I says, can I help you put it away? He says, no, no, just leave it. And he says, you know, Jim, we had to do the investigation, the way it was done. Because if we didn't, it was a very good possibility of 40 million Americans being killed. So wow. As we're walking down the hall to the elevator, I said, Well, what did Johnson think about? It? He says, Oh, he thought it was a big conspiracy. We do it to them, they do it to us. It's the way of the world. And so we got into the uh the uh, elevator, and he says, Jim, what's your, by the way, Jim, what's your beef against the Vietnam War? And I said, well,
2: I think it's criminal to send people into combat without the goal of victory. And he says, here I go agreeing with you again. And then he says, Johnson, Double crossed everybody. And he's just shaking his
1: head right after he said that. We got into his car because he wanted to take me home. I have to, you know, see where I live. And uh, we got up on uh, uh, Jefferson Boulevard, and it was jammed would rush hour traffic pile up. And so we started talking. And he says, uh, what branch of the military are you in? I says, I'm not. I, I, I was drafted, but I, I was given a one Y because of my back and my, uh, I'm colorblind. And he says, oh, he says, uh, you didn't bat an eye when we had some activity up there and I says no but I nearly pissed my pants and we got down got to my house my ex-wife and my uh, sister-in-law teenage sister-in-law and my little baby Shona uh, were at the door when I came home I guess they were concerned where I was no cell phones then and uh, I introduced him to my wife and he tickled the baby a little bit and went downstairs and I showed him my ceramics lab that I'd set up a potter's wheel and racks for greenware and stuff. And I threw a pot for him and he said his wife was very interested in ceramics pots. And we got out and as we were walking back to his car for him to take off, he grabbed me by the arm and turned me around. And he says, Jim, you're... Your wife looks just like Marina Oswald. What nationality is she? And I said, I am English, French. I don't know, <laughs> you know. And he says, well, he goes into a thing about Marina. He says, she lied through her teeth on almost everything, and she said that Lee Oswald beat her, you know. And uh, he says. If you're really serious about looking into this thing, look into a guy by the name of James Hubert Martin, who was her first business manager. He says, like every case I've ever been in, this one is follow the money. And here we are, the Treasury Department, we couldn't follow the money. He says, there's something about a Marina Oswald trust fund try to look into it and then he gets in his car and he's sitting there he says you know did you ever consider a career in law enforcement and I said oh, my uncle tried to get me going on that but I don't think so I, I've got I'm near you know getting my de- degree and I've gone in so far money and time you know and he says well think about it I can help you which I thought was very interesting. Uh, The very parting words that he did that night was, Jim, this case will never legally be solved.
2: Uh, Certain people will have to pass away
1: and then it'll probably some things will open up. But don't let this thing become an obsession with you. (laughs) Look at me. I'm obsessed with, you know, trying to find out more about everything. Pardon the pun. He drove. He drove off. In July, 18th and 17th, I think 17th and 18th, uh, there was a uh, Kirkland, suburb of Washington uh, of Seattle, there was a uh, arts and crafts fair that I signed up for, and. Uh, Packed everybody up, even a crib for the Shona. So I set up there with ceramics, glass blowing, and photography. And I called Moore at his office and said, If your wife is interested in some ceramics, I'm selling it. And she says, Hey, we'll show up. And he did, with
2: his wife, Marion. And uh he
1: came up and you know, he says, Can I Can we take a little walk? I want to talk to you. And I said, okay, sure. And he kept on plugging about, will you want to join the Secret Service? Do you want to join the Secret Service? Blah, 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 blah. And I said, not at this time, I don't, I got to finish my degree. And so he looked a little disappointed. We walked back to my display and I had a picture of that guy that Sprague took. I had a larger version, 11 by 14 printed up because I was getting, I took a lot of pictures of the uh, rioting and people were buying that because it was so close to the, and I had some portraits. I was trying to do a portrait uh, photography thing with black and white, you know, see because it's a good uh, portrait medium. And he looked at that picture, of that agent of some sort, and he says, I know this guy. And he says, I'll give you $10 for it. I said, no, you can have it. He said, no, no. Pulls out a fiver and gives it to me and wraps it up. He's still looking at it as uh, his wife, Marion, is, uh she bought about four or five
2: pots, walked off. And as I got closer
1: to my degree, this is about October of seventy one I called Elmer and asked him if he knew anybody in the federal prison system in that building and that I had an idea for putting together a crafts program in the penitentiary you know ceramics or you know drawing or whatever because I had read a, a thing about some of the better prisons in Mexico, they do that. They have uh, once a month, they, the prisoners are let out and they set up and they sell their crafts. And I thought that'd be kind of an interesting idea. And so he set it up for me with this guy that was a superintendent and it was in the same building. And that was the last time I saw him. Face to face and I said, keep thinking about uh, joining the service. And I said, eh, no and uh in january of 72
2: i got on the phone with him
1: and uh we agreed we shouldn't talk about you know the uh case anymore that uh we'll get together the way more put it we'll get together after i retire in a year and a half and don't worry i can find you you don't need to try to find me That's the last I talked with him happens until I'm contacted in June of 75 uh, by a man by the name of Bob Kelly of the Church Committee. They became aware of me through Richard E. Sprague. The Sprague had recommended that somebody talk to me. And I talked to him about my experiences with Carver Gayton, and uh, Elmer Moore. And in November, I got a phone call from a man by the name of Pat Shea from the subcommittee of uh, the church committee with Schweiker and Hart ran about the CIA. And uh, he said, Jim, we're going to subpoena you for january sixth nineteen january fifth pardon me uh of nineteen seventy six we'll get the plane tickets both ways for you, and you'll only be there a day. please write us a summary of your conversations with more so i did uh, i was very hesitant the day that uh, I was driving down to Mitchell Field, the International Airport in Milwaukee. I was getting cold feet because I was thinking that it might be an open session and I would, you know, expose Moore and Gaten and they wouldn't talk with me anymore. And I thought about it and thought about it, uh, arrived at, uh, National Airport, I got a drive, uh, a taxi driver to drive me to the Senate side of the Capitol. He looked like uh, a spitting image of Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, he was, he had so many chins, I couldn't believe it. And I got to the Capitol building and I was so impressed. Uh, went to the Senate side and the church committee was on the basement side of the uh, the basement of the uh, Senate side. So I walked down these long steps, got to a uh, reception center there, I handed my subpoena to a young lady who handled it to an Air Force lieutenant who said, uh, "Somebody be with you in about 15 minutes. Please have a seat in our lounge," and gagged me with a spoon. That lounge was fold of chairs and a dusty, smelly, cigar-ridden couch. So I what I did was I uh, I got a folding chair and sat there for a few minutes and man came up three piece suit tall fella introduced himself as Paul G Wallach he was a the council, chief counsel of the church committee and he was had his sidekick there Dan Dwyer who was a short little guy both of them were in suits and. They were very uh, nice to me, uh, introduced themselves. And then Wallach pulls up a folding chair and gets right in front of me. And he says, Jim, you have to help us nail this guy, Elmer Lamore. He's done the most egregious, unprofessional uh, things that a law enforcement agent can do. Did he tell you that he personally attended? the executive sessions of the Warren Commission. And I said, no, he didn't tell me that, but he told me that he delivered tapes, documents, notes to the White House periodically.
2: And at that point,
1: uh, Wallach and Dyer turned and looked at each other and then turned away. And then Dwyer says to me, uh, why would this guy even talk to you? And I said, I I built up a rapport from the first telephone conversation I had with him about uh, him saying that he was a student of American political assassinations. And we talked about Booth and it led on from there.
2: He said, okay,
1: uh, we'll come back in a few minutes and we'll go into session. I said, okay. I sat down and then a man approached the area and he was smoking. And he was tall, scared, disheveled in a big trench coat. He looked like he was near death. I mean, <laughs> he's so white. I couldn't believe it. And I said, are you okay? And he says, yeah, I am. I said, are you being deposed today? And he said, yes. And he said, are you? And I said, yes. And he says, remember, tell the truth, but don't volunteer anything. And he, he literally had a cigarette in here, and then he was putting it out and putting on another cigarette. And it was really smelly there. <laughs> finally, finally, uh, I think it was about 20 minutes uh, while well, like I can Dwyer show up, but with an army major. And he said, uh, Jim, this is Dan. And I couldn't pronounce, I couldn't list his wits. Uh, he is going to be the stenographer here. And very pleasant man. He shook my hand, noticed that he had a lot of service bars and he was probably 40 years old. So we went down from the basement, they had a uh, down escalator thing, and we got out and we walked down a long dark corridor. And he said, uh, we're going to uh, the Willard Hotel, which has been turned into a conference center and offices space, uh, used to be a very famous hotel in Washington, DC. And I said, okay, we got in there and Major Dan set up his equipment, uh, which didn't look like a tape recorder, by the way. And uh, Senator Schweiker came in and shook my hand, and we took the oath. And just as I was sitting down from the oath, two naval officers came in, sat right behind me. Uh, One was young, one was old, they both were nearly bald, Uh, uh, expressionless robots. They were just before I asked Wallach who these gentlemen were, and he went over and talked with the younger one to come back. he says, it's okay, we'll, we'll proceed. So Wallach pulled out my summary. I could see that it was my handwriting. And he went down the line with what i you know told you uh, prior in this session.
2: Uh, we got to the part about the satchel. I started describing
1: it, and all of a sudden, uh, the younger naval officer starts to whisper something to Wallach. Wallach goes over to Senator Schweiker, and Schweiker says to me, Jim, were you ever intimidated? I I was in horror. I was, what the hell? This is intimidation, is what I belted out. And I looked back and I stared at uh, the robots, and the robots were expressionless. They, you couldn't, they would be good poker players. At any rate, I started to say that, yes, I think I was intimidated, and it happened in August of 1971. My wife and I hitchhiked occasionally, but our bus stop was right out in front of our home. Uh, that we were renting uh, on uh, 23rd Avenue and Thomas Place. And a guy pulled up in a very nice car, very, very conventionally dressed man in his, I'd say, 30s. He says, you need a ride? And I said, well, we're headed down to the university district to see a movie. And he said, well, I'm headed that way. I'll take you. I said, OK. Uh, my ex-wife, Marie, got in the back and I got in the front with him and we chattered away a little bit to. He says, oh, wait a minute. He says, uh, uh, if you got about five ten minutes, I got to meet on the Arboretum, huh? The Arboretum is a very big, I'd say, walking trail park, uh, by the bay there. Uh, we drove down. I said, okay, we drove down, and he parks right up uh, as an abutment in the front of a very steep hill, and on my side, about three feet away, is a drop off into the water, you know, and he says, I'll be right back. And he gets out and he walks towards some people at a parking bench. Uh, there were men well dressed uh, casually. Uh, you know, they weren't hippies. They weren't drug addicts. It didn't seem to me. And he walked up to him and then I looked on the seat. The guy left a pistol. And I said, who in the world leaves a pistol in a seat, you know, and I'm going through this. And I said, Marie says, don't touch the thing. And I says, yeah, what are we going to do? We can't run away. You know, and I was thinking, oh, maybe they've, maybe this is it. Maybe we're going to be in a murder-suicide situation or something. Anyway, after about five or ten minutes, he, he walked back and I was too shattered to ask him. He picks up the gun and puts it in a holster thing, you know. And I didn't notice the holster thing when when, I, when he first picked me up. So I was very confused. But I did know this, that at the intersection, when you come out of the uh, Arboretum in Seattle, there is a, uh, a shell station. And I said, I got to pee. Can you let us out here? I, I got to pee. And so, and Marie said, yeah, I got it too. (laughs) We got out of the car. And I noticed he sit there for a minute. And I was about ready to make a call to the police. (laughs) He zooms off. But I said, ah, let's take the bus this time. But at the end of me telling what happened to me in the Arboretum, Senator Schweiker stood up and he says, this is ended. Let's go. So I was noticing on the way out, the robots were smiling at each other. And I was thinking, oh, this is not good. And I said Wallack, to Wallach, this is really, really stressful. And he said, yeah, he says, I was totally surprised by their presence. And then he says, Jim, can you stay overnight? I said, what? I don't have enough money. I don't have a credit card, and I, I only got 25 bucks." And he said, he goes in his wallet and gets out 40 and he says, we're going to put you up at the Arlington Sheraton. Uh, this is what I want to do. I want you to be in a room next to the room that we're going to interview more in. And if he claims he doesn't know who you are, uh, we'll spring you on it. And I says, "Oh, okay." So Major Dan will take you to the shirt. I said, "Okay." So we went to a parking lot area near the Capitol, and we got in his jeep, and we're driving off. And I'm having small time conversation. I asked him if he was a a Vietnam Vietnam veteran, and he said, "Yes, he went too many tours there. Uh, He was like he was." showing me we drove past uh, Senator Mondale's house and he talked about it and then we drove uh, through Icky uh, Washington DC itself I was was surprised that our nation's capital is ugly and we finally got to the Arlington he said he picked me up at 10. I said okay at 10 o'clock right on the button uh, Major Dan brought me back to the Willard and I was in the room at about 10.30, and a young guy, uh, almost bald, I can't remember his name, came in to talk to me about Carver Gayton and what Gayton told me about Hostie.
2: And about quarter to one Wallet came in, and he had this big thing full of documents
1: and memos and things. And he says, is your buddy, Elmer Moore, senile? And I said, I I didn't think so, no. And he says, well, he avoided questions, and he couldn't remember things. I said, well, did did he recognize me? He says, oh, yeah, he went into you. He said that uh, he was trying to educate you, and uh, it was a very friendly conversation. And I said, "Yeah." And he says "He did say that uh, you were lying about certain things." We showed him, you know, your transcript from the day before, so I know there was a transcript, and uh, it's in. You, anybody can see it the, in Mary Farrell. The, they print the the transcript of Elmer Moore's,
2: you know, deposition. And
1: nothing happens, you know, uh, until 1975. You know, uh, and then in 77, I should say, I got contacted by the uh, House committee and a man by the name of Gilbert interviewed me. Have you have you seen that interview?
2: I'll mail it to you. It
1: is it follows pretty quick to everything that I've said so far. And 1987, I got a phone call. I was living back in Milwaukee. And I got a phone call from Judge Jim Garrison. And he said that he'd been looking into my experience with uh, Moore, and I asked him, well, did you see a transcript? And he said, no, it's not a transcript. It's a it's your uh, comments to you know, the uh, House Committee. And he said, I've got the information that I've been lurking on more, who I think is an important part of this. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, is it? He said that he's been looking into Elmer Moore. He had read uh, the transcript from the uh, House Committee, but not he didn't have any idea about the church committee. See, at that point, that's when I found out that nobody has access to it, you know
2: um and then i'm still
1: i'm just sort of quietly looking into things myself for the next few years uh i get a call from jim douglas who wrote uh his famous book and we talked a little bit he sort of thought that i was exaggerating about things but he put it in, he put me in his book. And then I decided to call Hostie. And I had a very good conversation with him. What Hostie's thing is, what, what Carver Gayton told me that Hostie told him that Oswald was a paid informant,
2: but he wasn't informing. And Hosty told me that he
1: thinks that gaten was uh mistaken he thought that he hosty said i wasn't talking about Oswald. i was talking about jack ruby uh that they had a uh, agent by that tried to use him as a uh, informant but he wasn't informing on anything is what hosty told me then he went into a spiel about he really wasn't that interested in Oswald. Uh, He was interested in Marina because Marina was communicating uh, to the Russian embassy embassy in Washington with a man by the name of uh, Valery Gourmatsov, who Hosty said to me, was the handler of all the sleeper agents in North America that really concerned the FBI. And so that was his assignment to keep tabs on her. Now, Gaten told me that Hosty told him that he'd leave messages underneath the door when they left, lived in Neely Street to contact him, which is against FBI procedures. Uh, I asked Hosty if he wrote Notes to Oswald, and he completely denied it. Then he went on to talk about, did you did you read my book? And I said, no, I didn't know he had a book out at that time, Assignment Oswald. And he said, well, you should read it. Uh, I said, can I call you again? And he says, well, I'm in pretty bad health. And he did sound very bad. And I think he passed away s- several months later. And I said to him, Well, is it true that you said to uh, Lieutenant Jack Reville that the FBI knew that Oswald was dangerous and capable of a crime? And he said, Yeah, I don't understand why Jack would say that. Two days later, I called Jack Reville in Texas and I asked him about that. And he said, Well, he had a a witness at the time that uh, that he definitely said that Oswald was dangerous. And he said, well, he, normally hostie would share things with him. And so he was very upset that. You know, they didn't even inform him, and he's a part of the second in command of the intelligence division of, uh, you know, the, the uh, Dallas Police Force. And
2: I think I found out that there
1: was a Secret Service agent by the name of Bill Patterson that was in the office when in Captain Fritz's office when um, Hostie was there. And Hostie said the same thing to uh, Bill Patterson and Bill Patterson made a report about it. And I noticed that Bill Patterson was deposed by the uh, uh, church committee, and he did repeat the idea that Hosty told him that Oswald, they, uh, the FBI knew he was dangerous. So there's there's some very strange things going on about statements.
2: From that. And then uh,
1: in 2018, I go down to Dallas. Uh, Larry Schnaff has me make a presentation down there in Dallas for uh, his group and my friend Bob Corbis, who I, I want to give you his phone number. Bob Corbis. Some new stuff. Uh, He's got a number of my interviews he's done. He's also got a lot of good information. And he's been at it for, I would say, since the late 70s. And so Bob and I have gone back and forth. He's now in Oceanside, uh, California. But we go back and forth about a lot of stuff. And visit. We, we visited a second time, Abraham Bolden. Uh, I've got to get a hold of Phil Singer, because I want you, since you're, you know, you're new to the game. Oh, he's, he got the contacts, people that you would be very interested in. Uh, I got to call him and ask him if it's OK,
0: you know, but I'll get to you with that. Um, Yeah, we can talk about this a little bit off air. Um, You've given me enough of your time. We've only spent talking two hours, Jim. Dude, you have experiences I appreciate. I think my generation that's getting interested in the case should be appreciative of as well, too. Um, You've been through a lot. The the intimidation tactics on some of that stuff, I wouldn't have been able to stand there.
1: I've had bad troubles. I I tried to get from the
2: uh, National Archives my... Transcript from the church committee, and
1: we don't have it. We can't find it. Is what's going on? Uh, but I have, I have gotten some documents that I will send you uh, uh, periodically, that fill in some of the stuff. What I've been actually trying to do is try to verify things that uh, Morin Gayton had told me. You know, through other means, through other things. Um, There's documents. uh, One of the, are you aware of a man by the name of John Armstrong? I, I am. I'm not positive I buy his theories, but he did the most incredible research I've ever seen. And it's at Baylor University. You can tag into it. Have you done
0: that? Yeah. There's really a lot of info. I have to ask you one question. When it came to the interrogation and Hostie's notes, did they, they had two stenographers in that room. Did nobody write down anything else besides some notes from Bookout and James Hostie? Nobody bothered. I know they didn't have recordings back then, but they have two stenographers that could be easily writing down something.
1: I forgot a little detail with the Elmer Moore story. Um, So it's a good question. Oh, look at that. It's a very good question. I asked him about why the heck there is no transcript of uh, Oswald's interrogation. And he says, yeah, we were very worried about that. He says he could have asked any uh, reporter in the hall for a borrow a tape recorder. And he says, why didn't you tape it? When he talked with Fritz, he didn't like Fritz, I could tell. He said that Fritz gave him a lame excuse that the city council turned down buying more electronic equipment. And then Moore hit the jackpot. He said, you know, in a robbery homicide division, they had two certified stenographers. These two ladies were there that day, and they weren't utilized. So I thought that was incredible. And he was very, uh, Moore was very condescending towards uh, Fritz. I wouldn't have run that interrogation any way when form like. Now, according to a number of people and Jim Lavelle, who was uh, on the other side of uh, Oswald, when he was shot, was in there taking notes. but they never surfaced. Uh, Hosty notes are available. And Hosty wrote that Oswald said he was down uh, at the time, down at the entrance of the uh, depository, watching the parade. It's it's there. Uh, the prayer man thing is, it, yeah. It, it, it seems to me as if probably Oswald figured it out. There, he was. He he was probably told that there was going to be an incident that would look bad for the Cuban, uh, the uh, Castro Cubans. And then when he found, I think he probably figured, oh, oh, this is the real thing. I better get out of here uh I think he was to meet at the Texas theater with somebody because he had a dollar bill that was ripped in half and he had a cereal box thing that was ripped in half and he was moving from person to person in the uh, theater he didn't know who he was supposed to meet so I think uh all of these things dovetail at some point i I know there's some wild theories and things, you know, but I think overall, like Moore said, it was actually very simple. you know other people said that I know he knew the 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 good the the story of it to a certain degree, and he made that comment that uh the world will have to wait until certain people pass away.
0: Well, we're 60 years in, so he might be right on that one.
1: Yeah. I think the only person left is uh, Jenkins from uh, Jim Wave. Uh, There are things I'd rather communicate with you by
0: snail mail. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. No, Jim. Seriously, I like I said, we've been talking to as two hours about this. Um, I, I'm gonna have you back on a hundred percent because I'm gonna have to file up some more questions for you to get you, uh, based on whatever you send me document wise. But um, I appreciate you giving me the time to do this as well too. There were some connection issues for people listening. I'm gonna do my best in the editing process to fix those. Um, but as do you have any links, Jim, to anything you'd like to promote? Do you have um? A website, or uh, did you want me just to link oh, your not interviews? Now.
1: Not now. Uh, I'm I'm sort of working through Bob Corbus's uh, thing. On um, he's got his website at grassyknowle.us.com. He's got a lot of information.
2: Uh, he, let's see
0: here. Let me get his phone number for you. Well, read it to me off air. We're still recording. Let me just end, end this part. But yeah, yeah, don't read it on air. Um, do you have uh, any place people can find your stuff or is it just his website?
1: If you go to, this is how I, I research things. I go, you would find me by going Jim Gokinar slash JFK. Or if you wanted to go to a certain individual, let's say, um, Buell Fraser slash JFK. If you do the slash JFK, you'll get what's available with that person's name.
0: I'll make sure to link any links that I do find when I do that in, in the description so people can be able to find you. Jim, I appreciate the time. Um, We're going to talk a little bit off air, uh, but I, <laughs> I want to wrap up this show without giving anybody's personal contact info out there. But, Jim, well, thank you. We'll be in contact. I'll, I'll send you material. Uh, I'll talk to th- the guy you must
1: talk to is Phil Singer in Chicago.
0: Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. I just ha- have no contact info for him. I'll call him this afternoon, and I'll get the okay. All right. He thank sort you. of trusts me. <laughs> Well Jim, thank you again and thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of the Ad-